Uh, We're going to look at a couple of verses out of Genesis 12 this morning as we continue. Uh, If you're new to Green Tree, we've been in Genesis now since, uh, gosh, I guess uh, the first part of this year, and we'll be in Genesis through uh, the spring of next year, about, about 12 months in the book of Genesis, and we're up to, to chapter 12, a couple of verses, and then mostly chapter 15 this morning. I'm going to cover almost all of 15 today. i uh, got a question for you. It's kind of like a pop quiz. Don't panic. You don't have to turn the answer in to anybody. But I would like for you to answer this question. Again, just you. You don't have to tell anybody else what you say here. But I'd like for you to, to kind of fill in this blank, Okay. I don't trust God with blank. How would you answer that question? Or I don't trust God for blank. I'm just going to give you a second to think about that. I know it's uncomfortable if somebody stares at you but doesn't say anything, but just think about that for a minute. How would you answer that question in all honesty? Some of us might say, you know, I've, I've had health issues and I don't trust God to take care of my health issues. Some of us might say, you know, I've been out of work for a while and and I don't trust God with my job prospects. Uh, Some of us may be in challenging marriages and we've hit a rocky spot in our relationship with our spouses. You know, I don't know that I can trust God with my marriage. Or we may have a a child that maybe is an adult child but is really struggling. And, you know, I don't don't know if I can trust God for the well-being of that child, my future. You know, the economy is a mess right now. I don't know if we can trust God with that. Some of you may have been praying for somebody uh, in your family to come to know Christ in a deeper way, and that hasn't happened. You say, I don't know if I trust God for for that person's salvation. You might just say, you know what, Tom, you could have just said, I don't trust God and put a period there, and that that would have been my answer. I just simply don't trust God for anything in my life. Uh, The title of the sermon this morning is Situational Atheism, which I would like to say is an original phrase with me, but it's not. Uh, My good buddy Joe Trad came up with this to describe the struggle in his life. And and as he described it, I'm like, boy, Joe, you're describing the struggle in my life just as well. He was trying to describe this, the, the moments when unbelief outweigh faith. Probably the majority of folks in this room this morning would say, I at least believe there's a God. Uh, or I at least want to believe there's a God. That's why I'm here. Some of us would say, I definitely believe there's a God. I, I think probably most of us would find ourselves somewhere in that, in that camp. But I think probably everybody in this room who's old enough and willing to be honest enough would say there are certainly moments in my life where doubt and despair, because of the issues in my life, because of my circumstances, seem bigger than God. Even for those of you who would say, you know what, I've been a disciple of Jesus for a long, long time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Can you not look at a moment in your life? Do you not see a time in your life where you go, wow, the the mountain looks too big? (laughs) This situation, these circumstances are enormous, and I'm just not convinced that God can meet that need. It's at that moment where God's existence really means nothing to me. Because I don't believe at that moment that he, can, that he can care for me in this situation. Now, I'm not, please don't be offended by that if you're a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying you don't believe in Jesus. I'm not saying that you don't have faith. I'm simply saying there are moments of crisis, there are dark moments in each one of our lives where we, we step back and we go, I'm just not sure that God can handle this one. Do you ever have those moments? 
The text we're going to look at this morning, I believe, speaks directly to that question. A lot of times, a lot of people who are skeptical of faith say, you know, the Bible just isn't practical. And, and I want to tell you this morning, we come to a very practical passage of Scripture that I believe, if we'll look at honestly, would allow us to nurture a solid biblical faith, even when circumstances tempt us to disbelief or to skepticism. Let me say that again. I believe this passage can nurture within us a solid biblical faith, even when circumstances tempt us to disbelief or skepticism. And it really comes down to a question of focus. That's a word that we're going to use over and over again this morning by way of of instruction. So with that in mind, let me read the first three verses in, in Genesis chapter 12. Then we're going to skip ahead to Genesis 15. And we're going to break the sermon into two parts. Just so you know, this morning, we're going, to, we're going to do the first half of Genesis 15. We're going to take a little break, have a short prayer time and confession time, and then we're going to go on and look at the second half of the passage. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, hear the word of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And over in chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my own household shall be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, there isn't a person in this room over the age of five or six who, if we're honest with ourselves, would deny that there are moments of great skepticism. We have moments of of situational atheism. Not that we don't believe you exist, but that we look at our problems and they seem insurmountable. We look at the sorrow or the grief or the fear or the anxiety or the diagnosis or the prognosis or the checking account or the marriage. I say, this is just too big even for God. So, Father, this is a passage of Scripture that needs to impact all of our lives. Lord, what I say isn't important. It, it really doesn't matter. My words are irrelevant. It's only the eternal true word of God that can have any kind of significant impact on our lives. And it is that for which we pray because, Lord, every one of us falls into this category where we're tempted to disbelief, where we're tempted at moments to, uh, to just not trust that your goodness and your grace is sufficient. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say to us this morning. I pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to make six observations this morning. I'll try to move through them at a pretty good clip so, I, so, I, so you can stay with me. 
Uh, we're going to look at four of them, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we're going to look at uh, then we're going to look at the other two, uh, because I think this passage answers the question directly: Can I trust God? Can I believe Him uh, for the circumstances and the situations of my life? Now, I will tell you right off the bat: This is not a sermon where I say, "If you trust God, everything in your life will be just fine." Some people call that a prosperity doctrine or a prosperity gospel, which means if you believe in Jesus, you'll never get sick. You'll always have plenty of money. Uh, your marriage will always work out. Your kids will always be perfect angels. Everything is going to be good and perfect and right in your life. That's not what I'm talking about. The circumstances with which you came this morning, you're going to leave, and you're going to have those same circumstances in your life. I'm not talking about making promises that are irrelevant and go against what the Word of God says. But what I am saying is that this passage of Scripture profoundly speaks to the truth of God's trustworthiness. And so I want us to focus on that this morning. My first observation is simply a reminder of the promise that God has made to Abram. Back in chapter 12, God says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. In other words, your offspring are going to be uh, as big as as the population of of a country. You're going to have lots and lots of kids. Now, he says this to a man who has no children. He says this to a man whose wife has not been able to bear him a son or a daughter. He says this to a couple who are in a bad situation, given their circumstances in their day and age, having children was everything. In Abram's day, you looked at a person who had children as the person who was blessed, both by the deities or deity that you believed in and by their circumstances, because through your children, you were able to expand your influence and your prosperity. And so Abram has no children, and yet God says to him, I'm going to make you a great nation. You can't see it today, but it's true. I'll bless you. You will be a blessing. All the families of the earth will be blessed by you or by your offspring. God makes this astounding promise to a man who has no children. He reiterates it in chapter 15. God says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. And that word reward there talks to his lineage. Your reward that what I'm going to give you through your offspring is going to be incredible. You're not even really going to be able to fathom it. God makes this incredible promise. Now, we've all had people make promises to us, haven't we? You've had somebody who promised you something, and you've made promises to people before. Anybody that's gotten married and gone through marriage vows, you make promises to your spouse, you know, for better, for worse, rich or poor, all that. Uh, We make promises probably almost every day of our lives. And we've also experienced people keeping their word, and people breaking their word. So just because God makes a promise to Abram doesn't mean we're buying it, okay? It doesn't mean that, that, that right off the bat we're going, well, we're sure that's going to happen because we've all experienced promises that have led to happiness but have also led to radical disappointment. So we can't stop with just the promise. In fact, if you look at Abram's, my second observation is Abram's visible reality. Verses 2 through 3, Abram responds to God saying, Abram, I'm going to make you great. The nations, you're, you're going to have a great nation. Here's Abram's response. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. Abram, in a sense, and I don't want to be kind of flippant about this, but just to kind of get it in conversational tone, Abraham seems to be saying, you know, God, that's a really nice promise, but have you noticed I have no children? God, have you looked at the reality of my world? I mean, I, I want to trust you. I want to believe you, but it seems to me that your promise and my reality certainly don't go hand in hand. 
And in a sense, I think you feel the emotional pain of Abram at this point. You know, Abram desperately wanted to have children. Abram's wife, Sarah, desperately wanted to have children. I've had the, I don't know if I would call it fortunate or unfortunate experiences, of sitting down and talking with couples who haven't had kids yet that want to have kids. That pain is tremendous. It's a huge burden in people's lives. And we can't just go, you know, Abraham said, well, I don't have any kids. Like, it doesn't matter. This matters deeply to Abraham. I think it would be safe to say that this is the number one issue in Abraham's life far and beyond everything else. And I think there's emotional pain here that we need to see in the text of Scripture. There are traces of uncertainty and fear. And for Abram, I think what my buddy Joe calls situational atheism. God, are you going to answer this prayer? Are, we don't have any kids. Are we ever going to have kids? And, and Abram's visible reality is not very promising. And he's getting older. And she's getting older. And, and the odds, if you're just looking at it from a human perspective, the odds are dropping day by day. But in response to Abram's questioning God, notice that God doesn't chide Abram. He doesn't say, you're no good for not believing me. He doesn't say, boy, Abram, you sure certainly aren't a very good Christian. Okay. He doesn't get after him, but he does offer him a bit of a challenge. Look at verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord comes to him and he says, this man shall not be your heir. doesn't leave any question about that. He doesn't say he might not be your heir. He makes a statement. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he took him outside. He said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God says to Abram, Abram, you got to shift your focus. Your focus is all on your circumstances. My power is not limited. My vision is not restricted. My plans cannot be thwarted. But you got to focus on me, Abram. You can't focus on your circumstances. Have you ever uh, looked at a, at, a, at a picture? You probably see this more um, in movies than you do in still pictures. Where in a movie where they come in and focus, like, say, the main character, and it's a close-up of them, everything around them is kind of blurry, Right? And then when they pan back, you know, the character gets a little bit blurry, but the things in the background, depending on what the director wants to emphasize, that, that becomes clear. And that's the, that's the idea here. You know, Abram's looking at this picture, and, and God's in the picture, and children are in the picture, but they're pretty fuzzy. And what is clear to him is that none of this has happened yet, and, and it seems to be a bit of a mess. And God is saying, Abram, you've got to shift your focus. You can't look at me and your circumstances at the same time. You have to pick one or the other. And friends, that's a spiritual truth that we've got to get our minds around, that we have to understand. I can look at my circumstances and order my life according to my circumstances. Or I can look at God and I can order my life according to his word and his promise and his truth, but I can't do both at the same time. I have to consider my focus. And God doesn't chide Abram, but I believe he gives him a challenge. Now, God's answer doesn't change Abram's reality. The answer that God gives, Abram doesn't walk out of of his meeting with God and bump into Sarah and say, oh, I forgot to mention I'm three months pregnant. His circumstances don't change. They're exactly the same as before this encounter. What has to change is his focus has to be corrected in order that he may see his circumstances for what they are. In order that he may understand that God's 
his authority rules over Abram's circumstances that God is in control. Psalm 46 is one of my favorite Psalms. And there's a verse in Psalm 46. Psalm 46, by the way, I think one of the reasons it's my favorite is because it's full of action and full of activity. And there's all kinds of stuff going on in Psalm 46. And I, and God's doing this and God's doing that. And and I kind of like activity. I kind of like action. I don't like to sit still very long, but then you get to, to verse 10 in chapter 46. And it says just that it says, you be still and know that I am God. Friends, there's another spiritual truth that says, until I'm really ready to be still and focus on God, I'm not going to see him. Again, going back to, to the, the idea of a painting or a picture, have you ever, I like to go to art galleries. I don't get to go to them that often, but uh, we were in Boston a few years ago. I got to go to the, the art museum in Boston and, um, and, and I've been to a few other art galleries. I saw the art gallery in Moscow. It was really pretty incredible uh, probably about 10 years ago. But you ever notice when you go through an art gallery, they have these benches that are in front of paintings and people are sitting there just staring at the painting. Have you ever, have you ever seen that? And a lot of them wear the headphones because the, the guy or the little, the little lady inside the headphones are saying, now this painting was painted in such and such a movement and said so they abstract this and that. And, and I don't wear the headphones because I just want to look at it for, for what it is. But the, I find myself when I'm in an art gallery, it's the one place I can sit down and focus for a little while. I'm like, I wonder what the artist was doing there. You know, you kind of tilt, you try to look like you know what you're doing. I kind of do this every once in a while. You know, I don't know what I'm doing, but it's kind of, kind of fun to pretend. But I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the way, you know, I wonder how they did that. And, and that's what God said to Abram, Abram, focus. Be still for a minute. If you will, you'll know that I am God. You can trust my promises. And so uh, there's a challenge that's offered Abram. It's kind of like in that movie, The Fugitive. If you've seen The Fugitive, where... Um, they're at the train wreck and all, the, all the, the marshals and all the deputies and the police, they're all trying to find the guy who's escaped. Uh, they're trying to find uh, uh, Dr. Richard Kimball. And there's this one U.S. marshal who's just sitting there and he's kind of looking like this. And his boss goes up to him and he goes, Newman, what are you doing? And Newman goes, I'm thinking. In other words, I, I, before I start running around like a chicken with my head off, I've got to think about what I ought to be doing. And the, his boss gives him a terrible answer. He goes, well, while you're thinking, think me up a coffee and a donut, would you? Now, that's a bad answer. <laughs> God never asked you to think up a coffee and a donut for him, okay? God would say, that's a great answer, Newman. You sit there and you think about me for a few minutes. And God offers this, I think, gentle but honest challenge to Abram. So Abram reflects, and look at what it says in verse 6 of chapter 15. And he, that being Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. My fourth observation here is the response. What Abram does is he goes through a realignment of his heart. He was at a place where he's saying, Lord, I'm not quite sure how all this is going to work out. I don't really see you know, how you're going to do this because we don't have any kids yet. And God says, Abram, here's the truth. And Abram stops. He thinks about it, and he thinks about the source, and he believes. And God credits that to him as righteousness. In other words, God says, Abram, now you and I are in a good place, okay? Remember, we've said this before, but if you're new, you probably never heard this. In the scriptures, when you hear the word righteousness, it's always talking about our relationship with God. And God says, Abram, now we're in a good place because now you believe. Now you're trusting me. You're no longer out of balance. So the question I have to, to kind of bring the first half of the sermon to conclusion is this. Is this my spiritual condition today? Am I in a place where I'm focusing on God, where I'm spiritually settled, and I'm secure in my trust of him, even in the midst of how I filled in that blank a little while ago, even in the difficult circumstances of my life? Is my heart at peace? 
Am I settled because I know that I can trust him? One of my, uh, one of my life verses, I think my mom actually wrote this in my Bible about 20 years ago or 25 years ago, but I, it's always been rattling around the back of my head on a regular basis. In Isaiah 26, Isaiah writes this in verse 3. He's speaking about God. God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It doesn't say you'll have perfect peace because your circumstances work out. It says you'll have perfect peace when your mind is stayed upon God because you can't meditate on God and understand the reality of who he is and his love and his compassion and his mercy and not end up with an inner peace that maybe is unexplicable given your human circumstances. Is that where I am this morning? Yeah, my circumstances might be rotten, but you know what? I'm, I'm at peace for some reason because I know I can trust God. I, I would say that the answer to the question is yes and no. I would say that for most of us, that's where we want to be. And I would say for a lot of us, that's probably where we live most of the time. But I think for every one of us, as I've said at the beginning, who's old enough to really wrestle with that question, there probably are places of doubt. There probably are places where we go, mm, it, it, I don't really believe here. So what I want to do is I want to interrupt the sermon for, for just a couple minutes. And I want to give you a chance for silent prayer. And I'm going to take a moment for silent prayer. I just want you to feel free to confess that to God. You don't have to tell it to anybody else. Father, here's where I don't trust you. And I need you to work in my heart, my mind, to help me focus on you. After we do that, we're going to do two other things. We're going to pray a prayer of corporate prayer together. It's a corporate confession. It'll be on the screen, and we're going to pray it out loud together. Uh, and, and one of the reasons I, I want to do that is just to let us hear the words. You know, you may be reading it and praying it, going, I'm not even sure I believe this. That's okay. You just let those words settle in. And then we're going to affirm what we believe by saying together the Apostles' Creed. But for a moment, let me offer you a time for silent prayer. Father, I thank you that you hear our prayers. And I ask that you would continue to hear our prayers in Christ Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would stand with me for a moment. I invite you, if you're comfortable in doing this, to pray out loud with me. Holy and gracious Heavenly Father, your promises to your people are too numerous to count. Through a descendant of Abraham, you promise to bless the entire world. By your prophets, you gave your word that a Messiah would come, bearing our grief and carrying away our sorrows. Through the Lord Jesus, you have fulfilled these promises. Our Savior promised not to leave us as orphans, but to send us his Holy Spirit, who would comfort us and lead us into all truth. He also promised that in this world we would have tribulations but reminded us to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. The Christ also pledged that although he was going away, he would prepare a place for us and return to bring us home. Jesus has committed that when two or three of us gather in his name, he is with us. Through his apostles, we are reminded of the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. We have been taught that our enemy, Satan, walks around like a lion seeking to devour us. But you have assured us that the greater one is within us. Through your Holy Spirit, we can stand firm against our ancient foe. 
You have promised us that your word will be active and powerful in our lives. You have given us your oath that you hear and answer our prayers according to your perfect will. We are assured that the work of salvation you have begun in our lives will be brought to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. To this end, you have sworn that through your resurrection, we too, who have placed our faith in you, will be raised to eternal life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have all of these promises and more in your scriptures, yet we too often, we do not believe. We doubt your unconditional love for us and our adoption as your sons and daughters. We are more swayed by our temporal circumstances than by your good and perfect character. The reality is we often ignore your promises and walk by sight, not by faith. We are recipients of your promises, but we do not always believe them. Forgive our doubting, Father. Be merciful to us, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, make the cry of our hearts I believe, help my unbelief. Replace our faltering trust with a steadfast assurance in the promises of God. This we humbly pray through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And now I invite you just to affirm on the positive side what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. Now, my hope is, is that brief interruption there nurtured your soul and got your blood flowing so you can hang with me for another 10 minutes. Because the second half of the sermon is more important than the first half. The first half of the sermon talks about my focus on God. The second half of the sermon deals with whether or not God is trustworthy. So I wanted to uh, go back to the passage in chapter 15 and hear the following verses, chapter 7, or excuse me, verse 7 through verse 18. God is speaking and he says to Abraham, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur from the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half opposite the other or over and against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. 
As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot. A smoking fire pot would be what we would call a lantern. Okay, so smoking fire pot in Abram's day, you'd put it in your tent so that you could see at night. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I will give this land. Our trusting in God is only part of the equation this morning. The other equation you have to ask is what does God have at stake? in a sense. What does it matter to God whether he keeps his word or not? As I said earlier, we've all had moments where we have been recipients of people who have kept promises, and we've also probably been disappointed by someone uh, who didn't keep a promise. Have you ever noticed if you're a parent and you make a promise to your child, you know, even if it's like eight months later, we're going to do this, you know, to the moment of that day, your child says, hey, dad, hey, mom, remember we're going to do this or we're going we're gonna to go do that. But for some reason, they can't remember their homework for tomorrow. I haven't quite been able to put all that together. But when somebody makes you a promise, you're like, you count on it. You plan on it being true. And that's why you have disappointment if it isn't. And I think it's fair to ask the question, God, do you mean what you say? <laughs> because if you don't, I don't want to bother putting my trust in you only to be disappointed, only to be hurt. In other words, you know, God, do you have some skin in the game here, so to speak? What's at stake for you? What if Abram never has offspring? What if, what if all the nations of the world aren't blessed through him? What does that matter? Two observations about this second part. The first is this, that Abram's journey of faith continues. If you look at, at verse 7, God says, I brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. And to give you this land means you and your inheritance after you. And it also means all the other promises I've made to you up to this point. All of those promises, Abram, are good. And what does Abram say in verse 8? Oh, Lord, how am I to know that you will possess it? Now, a couple verses before, we read that Abram believed and God credited him for righteousness. And now Abram is back to going, well, you know, Lord, I'm looking around in this land of Canaan, which you're promising is pretty crowded already. The neighborhood's kind of, you know, I don't see any for sale sign up on the houses. So I'm not sure how all of this is going to happen. How, how will I know uh, that, that, you'll, that you'll do these things? And I think in a sense, Abram has just a bit of a momentary loss of focus. He's looking at the circumstances again, and he's asking a question. Now, the answer, which is my sixth observation of this text, is very bizarre. There's no way you can look at this part of of Genesis chapter 15 and think this is anything other than strange. And I'm going to try and explain it to you briefly and succinctly, but you're going to have to bear with me for a moment. The setting is this in verses 9 and 10. God says to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a pigeon. He brought them to him and cut them in half and laid each of them over against each other. So Abram has just made this, this kind of aisleway, like we have an aisleway down the center today. And the aisle is, is guarded on this side by half of the animals that have been cut up and on this side by the other half that have been cut up. Now, I thought about doing a visual demonstration this morning, but I thought some of you might be members of PETA and I thought that might be a really bad idea. But what we have here is a, is a bloody aisleway. There, there's no other way to explain it than that. And that's just a bit odd. I'm sorry. I, I was about to say, I don't care how you cut it, but that would be a really bad pun. I don't care how you look at this. That's just a little bit on the strange side. What is going on? Now, beyond that, God puts Abram to sleep, and then he gives him a dream. He talks to him in his sleep. And he says, I want you to know for certain, he says in verse 13, that you can trust me 
And, and to be specific, he says, you can trust me that, you're, that your children, okay, you are going to have children. Now, it's, it, it's a done deal in God's mind. They're going to be sojourners. They're going to, uh, to be servants. And then they're going to be heirs. So Abram, not only am I telling you you're going to have kids, but I have a plan. And the plan is much bigger than you could possibly imagine. But he puts him to sleep to tell him this. And then while this darkness is surrounding him, and while his vision is going on, this, this uh, lantern, this smoking fire pot, and this flaming torch go up and down in between the broken pieces of the animal. Now, again, I'm sorry, that's just really weird. What is going on here? If you've ever signed a contract, okay, you buy a car, you sign a contract. You buy a house, you sign a contract. You go into business with somebody, you sign a contract. If you've ever signed a contract, I want you to think contractually. In Abram's day, the way you knew whether or not you could trust somebody's word was this demonstration that we have in chapter 15. You cut the animals, you put them in half. Now, if we're partners, let's say you and I are going into business together, and you say, you know, I'm going to bring X, and I say, I'll bring Y. Okay, so we've got our, we've got our contract, we're ready to go. We walk shoulder to shoulder, in between these animals, reading the terms of the contract, okay? We're a partnership. We're a merger, okay? We're equals. And what we're saying as we read the contract and we walk up and down this aisle is, if I don't keep my part of the bargain, may I be completely destroyed like these animals, okay? There's a seriousness to this. There's a gravity to this. There's a weight to this commitment. We break contracts all the time in our day and age. I mean, there are commercials on TV now. You, you, have a, you have signed a contract when you got a credit card, okay? And, and now we've got advertisements saying, you don't have to pay that back. Call us and we'll get you out of the deal. <laughs> Contracts don't mean the same thing to us that they did now. And this day, if you broke the contract, you were saying, break me, okay? Now, that's if we're partners. Let's say that you and I are each kings and we go to war against each other and your army defeats my army, Okay? So now you're going to say, okay, Tom, here's, here are the terms of peace. I come to you and say, look, we're, you know, we're losing, we give. Okay? And you say, well, I want this much gold out of your gold mines. I want this much silver out of your silver mines. I want these many people to come and be my servants. And I want you, you're great, let's say you do a great job building ships. I want you to build me a dozen ships a year. Okay, Tom, here's the contract. If you want me to stop killing your army and you want me to stop invading your land, you sign off on this and we got a deal. And I say, well, we're, we're losing now, so we'll take the price, okay? We sign the contract. Now, as the winner, you say to me as the loser, Tom, walk between the animals. I won, you lost. I'm more powerful, you're less powerful. And Tom, you need to remember every day that you're king that if you don't do what you said you would do, I'll come back and I'll make you like these broken animals. And the greater forces the lesser into an agreement. The weight of this passage is significant because God doesn't say to Abram, Abram, I, boy, I told you I would do this. Now you better believe me and you better show me that you're going to believe me. You walk through these pieces. And if you ever doubt me again, I'm wiping you out. Don't do it. God, represented by the torch, God is the light of the world, right? God says, Abram, sit tight, buddy. I'm going to walk through. Abram, here's how much you can trust me. If I don't do everything I've said up to this moment, kids, the inheritance, that you'll bless the entire world, one of your offspring will be a blessing the entire world. If I don't do that, may I be completely destroyed like these animals. Now you say, Tom, that's utterly ridiculous. If God's God, he can't be destroyed, right? Fast forward 2,000 years. 
from the life of Abraham. And if you need a visual, it's right there. Jesus was broken. The Son of God, in a sense, became like those destroyed animals because he knew that Abram would always struggle and fall short. He knew that Abraham's descendants would always mistakenly not trust him and would make bad decisions in their lives, which we call sins, that all come from a root of unbelief. When I get into situational atheism, as I call it, I go against God and I go my own way. I say, it's God, it's as if you don't even exist. And at that moment, God doesn't say, okay, Tom, I'm going to break you to pieces. At that moment, God says, Tom, I broke my son to pieces so that you would know that you can trust me. And I mean what I say. And when I give you my word, even at the cost of my son on the cross, I will not go back on my promise. I come back to the original question I asked this morning. God, I don't trust you with X. I don't, uh, I don't want to be harsh. But you need to understand how grave a sin that is in our lives. Friend, I'm not saying that your circumstances aren't overwhelmingly bad at some point. I know they can be. They have been in my life. And I'm not saying when you leave here this morning, again, this is not a prosperity gospel. You're not going to walk out of here and win the lottery because you heard the sermon and said, oh, wait a minute, God, I trust you for everything. Can I have the right numbers? It's not what we're talking about. But I am saying to you, what Scripture says to you is that the biggest questions of our lives, the biggest question of our life, does God love me? Does he have a plan for my life? Will he care for me for all of eternity? The profound answer to that question is yes. He is a trustworthy God. I was talking to somebody via email earlier this week, a young person in our congregation, about this topic. And we were going back and forth in emails, and this is what, this is what the person wrote very, very briefly, talking about um, trusting in God first and foremost. I guess if I believe that the promise of God, that God loves me and that he is a good God, then I don't need to know if he will bless me with certain other things because ultimately those other things don't matter. Now, I'm not saying that the struggles in our life don't matter, but we're talking about a a context in which to understand them. If I trust in the promise, then there is no danger of hoping for other things because if they don't come to be, it doesn't change ultimately the truth that I trust in God. That's the right focus. That's the God we can trust. Let's pray.